Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another episode of the Dr. Will Show. Look, people, I bring on educators and entrepreneurs. Uh, we have conversations on how you can live your best life. Now, if this is your first time checking out the podcast, this is the Mobile University for Entrepreneurs, and I'm your host, Dr. Will. Today, I am bringing back Dr. Janae Johnson Seton, uh, Dr. J. We're going to be talking about something, you know, a little different. You know, normally when I come on a show, we're talking about professional development, personal development, entrepreneurship. Uh, but based upon our last conversation that we had uh, during that first interview and some conversations we had off the air, I wanted to bring on to talk about, you know, so what does it mean to be uh, a black educator? Uh, what we can do, some of our experiences we have, and how we can actually, you know, make an impact and take charge of these discussions where we talk about equity and inclusion and those things. So for those uh, who will be listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and Simplecast, Dr. J, will you please introduce yourself? Hello, Dr. Will. Thank you so much for having me again. I really appreciate it. Um, my name is Janae Johnson, Seaton, as he stated, and I am a professional learning coordinator at San Diego Mesa College. And, um, and my role is primarily to support uh, professional learning for the campus employees. And so even though some institutions focus on professional learning for faculty, I have the opportunity to work across the campus, which is a really great great position to be in because I get to meet a lot of um, people and we get to work on a variety of different things. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, okay. Let me get in this, this first conversation because I have come, I talk to people and when we get in mixed company and we talk about issues around, you know, equity and, diversity and inclusion, a lot of things, you know, come up. And there's this one cat that he and I don't even speak anymore because he told me I hurt his feelings. Uh, mm. <laughs> because I told him, I said, look, man, I, I don't concern myself with what white people are doing. I'm just gonna be honest with you. Uh, we did, I didn't create white supremacy. I didn't create these structures. And as a black person, I'm not going to end them either. Uh, I am more concerned with black educators getting in the game, building schools, uh, you know, creating businesses, creating sort of an economic power that can lead to political will. And he was like, oh my gosh, Will, I'm offended. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. Um, and I, that we no longer communicate. This has been like eight months since we've really communicated, uh, except for he had tweeted out something about like in support of Kanye. And then he got blocked mm -hmm. after that. But <laughs> like, oh, OK, uh, yeah, I was like, we're done for good now, brother. We're done for good. But I just found it strange that he took what I said 
personally, but not understanding mm-hmm. sort of the merits of what I was saying in terms of there's not anything a person of color can do to stop the structures of inequality because we don't create them. Mm-hmm. We don't control them. Mm-hmm. We have to do something else. Yes. And I brought this all up to ask is how can educators have these type of conversations that honor both our and our students' experiences while building the foundation for real solutions? Well, that is such a hard question um, to answer, even though when I read it, when you shared it with me, I was thinking um, along the lines of like different you know, people that I've read, such as like Bell Hooks and Paulo Freire and things that are that are still very new to me in terms of, you know, these things around like uh, race and and the colonization of education, I, I guess would be, I don't know if those are the right terms, but that's what, what I think of because I oftentimes have noticed that at least when I was young, there were, I had some, I grew up, I went to a Catholic school in Oakland and then the first few years, um, my teachers were black women. And, um, but then as I got older and I started to go into larger schools, I did not see it as much. And, but I remember there was in that formative time in my life that it was a really important um, experience that I, I didn't understand until later. And the reason I say that is because I, um, just remember how they made me feel as a student and the things that they instilled in me. And I think that now there's so many things out there in terms of like what through the internet that we can read and access and begin to talk about white supremacy um, and talk about the systematic oppression that has been, you know, um, perpetuated these, these things where students maybe in situations where they don't feel like they can talk about it or maybe they feel that they're not free to to be themselves because they have these uh you know unspoken things that they may they may observe or or experience in their classes but i think having the conversations is probably the most important first step that can can start the what I would consider to be some healing because I think it's important to just have the safe space to just even talk about what is uncomfortable because oftentimes I think it's, it's hard to just, people get triggered. Like you said, if you mention race or, um, you know, certain words, you know, they, it, it just can send people's minds spiraling into a direction where, it could be a fair question um, of someone's inability to understand what another person may be experiencing. And it could be the starting point to engage in a way that understanding is developed. And, and I think that it's because it's hard, it's sometimes avoided, you know, or it may blow up, you know, into something, but then, but I think that it's, that doesn't necessarily mean that it was failed. You know, it just means that it has to just develop so that solutions can be cultivated, that they can begin to respond. I think you can't 
have real solutions unless you first talk about what the problems are, you know? And that's something that can be challenging because I think people feel afraid, like, well, how can I dismantle it? You know, what can I actually do? And I feel that too in my role. And it's, it feels there's some discouragement that comes along with that. But then there are practical things that researchers have, like Dr. Frank Harris and Dr. J. Luke Wood and Dr. Estella Ben Simone at University of Southern California that they draw out in their research, you know, that we could take steps towards, you know. As Nipsey said, it's a marathon, you know, the marathon continues. So it, it's it's hard for me to have those conversations, like I said, in, in mixed company because I don't know how to respond when people become defensive, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's pushback over something as simple as, you know, I once asked a teacher, you know, I said, hey, I, look, I, I, I'm going to ask you this. I really don't want to know the answer, but I'm going to ask you this anyway. Like, what are you doing in your class uh, for Black History Month? He said he's not doing anything. The state does not pay him to do that. The state pays him to teach the state standards. Mm -hmm. Right. And I said, okay, you, you teach black students at a black school. Um, having your students learn about themselves and how people who look like them contributed to your subject area could be of benefit mm -hmm. to help you reach your students, to help your students see themselves in the material and maybe work harder because they feel, wow, I have a place here. Mm -hmm. So what are you saying? I can't teach because I brought up all corn. And I say, you know, when, mm -hmm. you know, like these students are learning from people who, uh, the, the curriculum, they, they bring in, you know, black excellence and yes. So he said, oh, you're saying I can't teach the, these kids because I'm white? And I said, no. HBCUs don't have all black professors. I said, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the overall culture of the classroom and the feel of it. And again, he, I was like, oh, I'm like, this cat is different, right? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. he's not hearing me at all. Mm -hmm. And I just say, hey, man, you know. Just ask him, man. You just you have a good day. I, what was I supposed to do with that? Mm -hmm. Because I never, it, it, in my mind, I never said anything of you're white, you're bad. But he mm -hmm. took it that way. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. When, he, when this comes up, what, what, what are we supposed to do with that information? How, mm -hmm. how can we have these conversations that push the needle forward if someone is going to take it personally, as though mm -hmm. you're saying you have no role in this, or you are the enemy, or you are what is wrong, when 
nothing of the sort was even brought up. Okay, so in those situations, I think it's very difficult because depending on the relationship you have with the person as well as just the level of trust that is is a, is there between the both of you in that instance can determine or inform like how they're going to respond and even receive what you say. And so I think it just takes I would say almost a case by case, you know, situation because I don't think it's like a one size fits all to like all of those. I think there are like really good strategies that are available that you you know, you or I could use if it's like a large group or a smaller group, but if it's one-on-one, -on -one, sometimes it may just be addressing that you notice some discomfort and then asking them questions. But if they don't feel comfortable to do it, then almost just recognizing that there's some discomfort and then maybe directing it into, you know, an opportunity for you to talk later and at a different time. But it, it just it just depends because some people are very they may not be open at all and then some people are open and then some people may also just want the opportunity to express how they feel and I, just being able to discern what approach to take in that given situation so that they aren't also just shamed you know sometimes i think people feel the resistance because they don't know and not knowing and saying that they don't know may be terrifying, you know, so then it becomes an out in a way that's defensive. But I think asking questions sometimes allows them to feel that their voice is valued in the given scenario and, and then gives you also information to then respond in a way that addresses what the real concern is that they're having, right? Because if they just start throwing out <laughs> like different things, you know, it's like hard to really identify what really is their concern. But if they talk and communicate what their concerns are, then it allows you more of a stronger response to share in relation to whatever it is that they might provide as a result of the questions you ask. All right, all right. I sent out a tweet last year because I find it interesting. Uh, and and it, I know the importance of Black uh, History Month. Um, I don't like, you know, that it's special. Uh, I think Black history should be 365. That's how I live my life. You know, I don't look in the mirror and then in February, you know, it's like, I ain't black this month. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's, it's mm -hmm. every day that I know who I am and uh, the people uh, that I that I come from and, and our contributions uh, to the, this country and the world in general. How do you, how has being a black woman impacted you as your role as an educator? I feel it's impacted me. Um, in a, I mean, it's, when I think about my identity, I think a lot about that because my mom is um, 
my mother is from Hawaii. She's Japanese and, and white, and my father is black. But growing up in Oakland, there was a lot of a lot of um, interracial marriages. But I always had this identity, or my you know is informed by being black because a lot of the people that I went to school with and I was raised with in things that I did, they were more along the um, the lines of you know, black culture. I mean, my dad would make greens and Southern foods and he even taught my mother how to make it so <laughs> that she would make greens and black eyed peas. <laughs> I still eat that. And I, you know, so when I talk and the language that, you know, we had as growing up and the slang and all of that is very, it's a part of how I see the world. It's like a lens that I look through. So when I started teaching and I went to college I noticed that students I just I just understood that there were some challenges that going through that path that I faced and because I could see similarly just some of their um their challenges that I I wanted to just I guess in some ways try to give them insight into it. And um, and so as a woman of color, that was like my goal. That was like what I really wanted was to just be honest with them and then give them extra support if they needed it or talk to them, even if it was just about personal things. Like I didn't want them to feel like they just left my class and then they just didn't have any information about what that was going to look like for them, you know? Mm-hmm. And so when I think about that, I think about those students who don't have the a support or the information, you know, some students did. I mean, I grew up with some, some young women that um, had parents that went to college. So they like did really well, you know, and um, some young men, but then there were some that didn't. And it was, so I just would think about, well, what can I give to them that would strengthen their um, their focus and their goals, you know, so that they could get to where they're trying to go. And and so that was what I felt like my role. It was, it was more of like trying to uplift them, I guess, in a way, mm-hmm. um, more than just give them information when they came in class, more than just let me provide you with you know, what Shakespeare literary devices, you know, because I taught English. Stuff like that, you know, like some sense of who they were and and how that was important for them to cultivate and develop that, you know. Mm. That was probably how I saw it. And I want to throw this out there to you because I don't know if you've if if you have had that experience, but as a university professor, I don't know if you've ever accounted this but those students that may be first generation mm-hmm. and they're there for the first time and they're seeing all these, these things on campus, whether it's they're going through, you know, financial, have financial concerns or, you know, academic concerns or in a new social environment that they've never been in. And they're wondering if they made the right decision if they belong there or whether or not school is for them or they need to leave school. Mm-hmm. 
how do you as that professor uh particularly you know one who looks like them and comes from a similar background uh what do you see at that point your role as maybe a mentor or a sounding board or or that space for them to help them understand that they do belong and to get them sort of becoming more comfortable in this new environment mm -hmm. it's um I, i'll share this there was a there's a book that i i read by lisa delpit called other people's children and she talked about and up until this point you know i had some opinions about you know how do you you know, do you tell them you have them read, you know, Malcolm X? I mean, you know, I don't know. I was like, how do I do this? Because I have children of my own also. How do you encourage them to identify who they, with who they are and their background without still giving them the opportunity to flourish in, let's say, a system that's not designed for them, right? Because it seems like it's it's difficult to do. So then when I think about HBCUs, obviously I know that HBCUs provide the environment and the support that allows them to build on that identity and then still allows them to academically flourish. But when it's in an environment that maybe not as uh, focused on addressing that needs, or maybe just in general, because it's just a, a large school, you know, it has a lot of students and so some of it, I would say, is finding those support systems. I know that in some research, um, I think it was uh, Sean, Dr. Sean Harper at USC, but he talked about high impact practices and making, um, and so sometimes students, maybe they may not always in, get them involved in them, but knowing that they're available to them. So like finding other support systems within the college that allow them to connect with um, the campus community and, the, and through these campus programs. I think at um, some schools they have, at least at Mesa we have Emoja and then Puente, which is for Latinx students. And then they have a lot of different types of opportunities for them to, they have summer cruise, which is, a, is for first time students who come in and what they do is they pair them with a, a peer mentor and then that allows them to transition throughout that first year with that mentor and they, you know, and then it builds relationship, it builds community for them. And I think especially with students who are new to it, having those connections helps them to stay anchored when they may feel, you know, afraid or nervous or confused or have anxiety about this new scenario that they don't know, you know, what to expect. And so when I um, have come into contact and had the opportunity to work with students because sometimes I would pull student panels together and I would just talk to them about their experiences and if I see them and we interact I just always just try to encourage them to stay involved and to remember as I say you know just encouraging things because I know that life in general can be very hard and challenging some students have home housing insecurity, food insecurity, and then they're trying to get through this education experience as a way to find some economic mobility, you know, and all of that is wearing on them. And so 
I just try to remind them that they can do it and it's okay if they need help and it's okay if they're not sure what to do because we all find ourselves in those spaces at some point or another throughout our whole life. So just because you're young doesn't mean that, or because you've now become an adult that you don't have that. So just trying to keep them in some form of community and finding some programs that will allow them to be connected to something that, that'll keep them you know, on the path. So let's talk about you know, modeling and representation and the need for students of color to see themselves reflected, not only teachers in the classroom, but in school uh, leadership. And what are your thoughts on the absence of teachers of color uh, in the classroom across many school, K through 12 schools and universities around the country? It's, um, I think it's, I, I guess I would just, I'll just speak for myself. Like it's a, I think as far as perception and the perception about teachers in general, you know, not even just teachers of color is that, you know, they're underpaid, but they're overworked, but they have such a important and critical role right in um just across so many levels right from kindergarten to 12th grade then you know higher education it's just and so once you even get into the higher education part which is even treated differently but then there also seems to be some type of disconnect between the k through 12 you know and so when i think about that i think within at least our our school some of the things that I've learned that is being implemented is finding ways to connect with schools and building programs so that they can bring in more faculty of color and, um, and, and provide those. And I think that's something that a leadership, someone in a, a role of a leadership position has the ability to do. But if, again, if it's, it's almost like, I don't know which one comes first, you know, if, if you, you need the support. And if so, if I work in a school that doesn't value that, then it may be a lot harder to get the leadership to think in terms of how can we bring more faculty of color or more teachers of color into here, or how can we recruit more teachers of color in this, you know, high, this teacher ed program. And then what, in what ways are we strategically doing that? And then how are we providing avenues for them? Do we give scholarships? Do we give fellowships? Do we identify um, groups of students who may come into the major? You know, I mean, is there, are there things that are being done to support that? And I think the lack, um, I, I don't know, I, I'm thinking of, um, there was a podcast by Malcolm Blackwell some time ago and he talked about Brown versus Board of Education. And up until this point, you know, Brown versus Board of Education, that Hallmark case that went to the Supreme Court that integrated schools was what I learned in my graduate education program as pivotal in terms of like what changed education. But when he 
talked about, um, he interviewed the woman that was part of the case um, as she was a child at the time, but he had recordings of her parents and the reasons that they wanted to, you know, have their daughter go to a school that was closer to where they lived. But as a result of Brown versus Board of Education, there was like 20,000 black teachers that lost their jobs. And the reason that the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Brown um, was not because they valued the education um, roles of the black educators. It was because they believed that they were being not being well educated in the black schools. And so when you realize, or at least when I realized that, then it gave me like a totally different perspective about why maybe historically there is not as many, you know, or I mean, even in Lisa Delpit's book, um, Other People's Children, I mean, she interviewed a lot of women and men of color about their roles as educators and some of the challenges that they faced. And they've sound very similar to things that I've experienced or that I've even witnessed. And when we see that, it doesn't seem like a lot of support. You know, they experience microaggressions and when they try to offer ideas about how to be equitable in their educational practices um, to their white colleagues, it is often not seen as valuable. If they say, oh, well, if you have you know, black students or if you have Latinx, I mean, and she interviewed some indigenous people of, of Alaska in, in, her, um, in her book and you know, how they then had to how some of the people in the teacher education programs at the uh, um, Alaska institution, how they were, you know, facing challenges trying to tell these, you know, non-Indigenous people how to teach the children and how they would get pushback, you know. And so I just feel like what, how are these edu teacher education programs structured and how are they beginning to support and strategically attract these teachers of color to then begin to, you know, become strong educators and then how are institutions and how is their leadership beginning to evaluate what they're doing? How are they bringing in faculty of color? They always say that there's not a pool, but there's a pool. There is a pool of, of Latin X. There's a pool of Native American faculty, there's a pool of black, you know, faculty and teachers, but what, how are they supported? How are they invited to the process? I mean, a lot of them, you know, they, they get treated differently. They're more scrutinized. I mean, there's research that says this and, you know, so, you know, sometimes they just probably don't want to have to go through the hurdles, you know, but if there's people who can become allies, and begin to open up the, the doors to allow for, um, to make the changes that they know need to happen, then it can, you know, maybe make a shift, you know, and then we continue to do what we do and make those strong, you know, efforts in our own roles, you know, but I think that that's a tough question to answer. But I mean, I try to just share just things that I've come across and, but Lisa Delput's book, Other People's Children, is really talks a lot about the teacher education um, experiences of people that she interviewed. It's really good. All right, all right. People, I'll pop links into 
the show notes uh, so you can go okay. uh, get that book. Uh, I've heard stories of or read for Black educators as well that they are looked at as the disciplinarian. So mm-hmm. schools will give them the quote unquote tougher kids mm-hmm. to teach. That's exhausting. <laughs> That's exhausting to be, you know, to do that. Or even to me to to have someone look at you and say, uh No AP, you know, we're going to give you these kids right here. We know you'll be great there. Like, what are the assumptions there? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's, it's really interesting about what you see. Like, I, I don't see that here. Mm-hmm. My school district is different. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. And I know there are some school districts in the Delta that are dealing with, that, that do deal with uh, the teacher shortage and a, te- and a shortage of, you know, teachers of color. But my school district, it just doesn't happen. So for me, when I hear these these stories, they are foreign to my own experience. Mm-hmm. Yo, Doc, we, we getting close to the end right here. Yes. <laughs> All right. You know you need to come on back to Mississippi, right? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I did like Mississippi, but I, you know, I'm a California girl, so it's a little, it's a little hard to leave this nice weather <laughs> for the, <laughs> for the sauna that Mississippi can be in the summertime. <laughs> yes, it can be, people. <laughs> ever been here it can it, 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 it be like 90 degrees at nine o'clock in the morning uh, in july and june so it's for real uh but yeah i'm not gonna lie this, this the summer the summer around here is is it is what it is but i do <laughs> <laughs> i do i do enjoy yeah my that that light bill is real high <laughs> in the summertime but ac so, you have to have ac yes indeed it's it's crazy uh, so moving forward, you know, I, as we're having these discussions and we're trying to do the work, how can schools become more uh, culturally responsive uh, to the needs of our students? And what advice do you have for folks? Because the reason I want to ask you about people who don't want to get involved, but I want to ask you about the folks who do want to get involved, but they don't know where to start. They don't know how to start or are concerned about saying or doing the wrong thing. Their Mm -hmm. heart is in the right place. They're ready to go, but they're sort of like, Hey, what if I say the wrong thing? Mm-hmm. You know, what if I want to do this in my classroom, but I missed the mark because people find it culturally insensitive? Mm-hmm. Well, I I think there's a lot of models out there that I've 
had the opportunity, just, you know, looking, there's organizations, when I think about professional learning, professional development that offer training around this. And I think that even when you have training, that it still has to be an intentional effort to, as starting, but making it a continuous thing that you do. So if, if I'm a, just hypothetically, if I was a leading a school, I would first start with trying to build community with the members within that school. And I, then I would want to address some of the needs that our students have and make that clear to that group, as well as the needs that they then feel they have as instructors or staff and how they want to proceed in developing their skill and their, um, but not just the skill, but just like, um, you know, their cultural beliefs, their values, and um, how do we address that within the whole organization, right? Because if you have a school, you could, your district, you know, may have a large influence on what you're doing. But if, if you, if the culture of the school is also for or against it, then that may, you may need time to build trust and community so that there can be some type of shift, right? Because a lot of, when it comes to being culturally responsive, I think it's something that is in the heart and mind, right? It's in our consciousness because then our unconscious biases, our, you know, core beliefs have to be, how can I say it? Um, they have to be viewed, like we have to see them and then we can then change or make adjustments according to what we are able to perceive about ourselves. And, and what I mean by that is being culturally responsive, if I've always grown up in a individualistic culture, right, where, which I think often is what we can describe as American culture, which individualistic culture, you know, is more um, direct and it is more focused on getting the job done and doing certain things it's it's more individual focused but if we have someone that we now have to say but we have students who have a lens of collectivism and their collectivist ideas don't always center on individuality so what are some strategies and practices that you can use to facilitate a classroom that isn't just heavily individualized, but that is brings in and leverages the cultural wealth of the students based on collectivism. And sometimes I think positioning and in that way allows people to just see that there's two different ways to approach a situation instead of it being, um, you know, you have to take this equity training, you know, or you have to go do this, but really just seeing that, oh, I just, have a cultural um, framework that is different from my students. And, and I think that sometimes in order to get there, you have to start with building the community, building the trust within that group, and then evaluating the culture of that organization. Um, there's this article that I always read that was given to me in some of the trainings that I've done through uh, 3CSN which is a chancellor supported network um, through for community colleges in California called um, 3CSN, as I mentioned. And 
that article is by someone named Clyde and I can give it to you so you can put it in the notes, but it's a really great article about how it's, it's called, um, is real change possible? Mm -hmm. And it talks about these four quadrants and one quadrant is about cultural and core beliefs, right? Like, so their personal, like their personal views. And then the next one is skills. And then there's one that talks about the actual culture of the organization. And then the fourth quadrant, um, I think it's like, I, have, I can't think of uh, what it is, but in the article, he basically says that all four quadrants have to be working in concert with each other in order to facilitate change within an organization. And so I think that professional development is a start, but I think there's like other parts that have to kind of come together in order to facilitate that change in order for a whole school. Because you may have instructors that are the choir, right? And they're always the important group that allows you to like lead these initiatives forward. And then you have the late adopters, right? But, but how long that may take could also be, you know, uh, ch you know, challenged by the fact that the culture may not be conducive for this initiative. So then how can, what are some other ways? And I think that building community, making an, an intentional effort over, you know, three years, five years, you know, and beginning to work backwards from that five-year goal and then saying, like, how can we look at all these key quadrants in terms of Klein's article, because I like that article. There's models out there that can be used as a guide to personalize how a school can then begin to address these equity gaps and then bring in support systems for not only the students, but also the, the instructors and the staff on how to get involved. I think if there's a strong push for it, and some things may be in place and some things maybe not, but I think those key people who believe and push it forward are the ones that can start to be the impetus for that change. Thank you, Dr. J, for coming on the show. I appreciate you uh, spending your time and dropping all of your gems. Thank you for sharing and being very open and honest about your feelings and experiences. Now, people, you know how I do this. Uh, this episode will be on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and Simplecast. I need you to follow, subscribe, leave your comments, leave reviews, people. I need you to leave a review. It is very important so that we can be easily found on Apple Podcasts. I need you to share this thing with everybody you know because your boy's trying to get Oprah on the show and I want her to know that we're doing big things around here. Again, I would like to thank my guest, Dr. Janae Johnson-Seaton for coming on. Uh, I would like to thank you all for checking out another episode of the Dr. Wheel Show, the mobile university for entrepreneurs. Go ahead and check out the Entrepreneur, a documentary that explores the life challenges and successes of what it means to go from educator to entrepreneur. It is available on Vimeo and Amazon Prime. As always, people, invest in you, edu, 
Peace.